David Levine works in, with, or towards theater, depending on how you look at it. His background as a commercial theater director and his deep admiration for minimalism and the conceptual art of the second half of the 20th century overlap, complement each other, and brutally collide in a body of work that constantly speaks about the limits, codes, spaces, methods, and audiences of theater. Levine's work draws from the profoundly popular tradition of American realist theater in order to carry out experiments that are often profoundly unpopular, difficult to document, or simply invisible. In Bowen Theater, 2007, for example, David Levine hired American actor David Barlow to step into the shoes of a German farmer in the most direct way possible, spending five weeks after an initial month of rehearsals in a Brooklyn studio, working 10 hours a day on a hectare of land in a field in Brandenburg, Germany. Bauern Theater, which became something of a media phenomenon, is a scathing commentary on the global labor market, work, resistance, and authenticity. In this podcast, David Levine discusses this piece and some of his other works as well as the historical precedents of what he calls infiltrations in everyday life, such as Adrian Piper's The Mythic Being, Vito Acanchi's Following Peace, and Lynn Hirschman Leeson's Roberta Brightmore. Almost an hour chatting about reality and fiction, representation, invisibility, loops, and disappearances of all kinds. When I was a theater director, half the work I would do would be considered experimental, and half the work I would do would be considered commercial, which is to say realism, the big American thing. And even when I was doing experimental theater, formally experimental theater, I tended to approach the work with actors in realistic terms, in the language of realism. And the thing that most interested me about this was that realism with actors in particular, was really trying to approximate um, a condition of normal being, right? Like, so whereas, whereas experimental theater is always very marked as theater, the idea behind American realistic theater is that it should look just like real life. It should feel just like real life. And the acting technique is geared towards creating performances that are the opposite of expressionistic. So I was, I was working in theater. This acting style really appealed to me formally, the constraints or the premises of theater didn't interest me so much and I started to get a little frustrated because avant-gardism works very differently in theater. So this this sort of process-based idea of the merging of art and life, this kind of Capro-based kind of approach to performance, this never this never hit theater. So most forms of conceptualism, most forms of post-conceptualism, none of this stuff ever reached theater. Theater de- in America defines itself as a spectacle no matter how minimal. It was never, it's never supposed to leave the theater. That's if you wanted to leave the theater, you would go somewhere else. So I was in this position where I, I didn't really accept the formal definitions of theater, but I liked all the elements in theater. And so I, at a certain point, shifted away from that. And I took, I took the actors with me and I took the approach to acting with me, but I wanted to put it in a context that made more sense to me. And the context that made more sense to me was very much influenced by by Capro, by a lot of, um, by Lynn Hirschman Leeson, by Teching Shea, by Adrian Piper, by Akanchi, all these artists who'd done these experiments with sort of putting secret performances out into the world. And I wanted to bring, I wanted to bring these actors in to do that because I wasn't, I wasn't particularly interested in what happened if I did it. These other artists were thinking about questions of you know, what it is to be a woman, what it is to be an immigrant, what it is to be a black person in the U.S., what it, I mean, all, all these different notions of identity. And those, those my, my identity in the U.S. is not particularly interesting to anybody, least of all me. But I was interested in what would happen with actors. And the other reason I was interested in this was because performance, visual arts performance, contemporary art performance, tends also to be very expressionistic.
performance isn't really touched by the legacies of of pop art for instance or minimalism or any kind of industrial production right like it's always it's still really about authenticity like performance is still the one place where where the artist is the artist and it's very uh, which coming from theater i had no investment in it anyway so one of the things i liked about actors was that they were commercial actors was that they were it was like commercial materials it was like brillo boxes or fabrication techniques they were like mass-produced people in a way or they could be because they had this technique and so i was interested in sort of what would happen if you use them in these contexts so that that's that's where it all kind of came from i think i don't really love spectacle and i have problems with it and i'm much more interested in what in what happens when you can barely tell if something is real or not what visual arts tends to take from theater especially the last like five or six years is thinking about the language of gesture and since there's been this kind of affective turn whatever in the in the visual arts um this notion of you know the language of crying the language of talking the language of there's a lot of archaeology of old semiotic systems for conveying emotions from the 16th century from the 17th century but it tends to frame the activity as an activity and i think one thing that visual arts could take from theater is exactly this notion of suspicion this notion of virtuosity this notion of things that pass as real without announcing themselves as real and the other thing i think really is that and it's more to the point is that i had a problem with theater because i felt like it was insufficiently critical and it was insufficiently concerned with formal or art historical problems at least in the us but then conversely my problem with my problem with contemporary art or conceptual tradition was that it tended to be much too hermetic so it would make these very outlandish political claims in a kind of efflux way that was very 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 you know hyper theorized hyper articulate but it but it wound up still relying so heavily on the gallery space and on the museum as an institution to promote these claims that it wound up inadvertently being extremely hermetic for a very small group of people who could receive that message in spite of its explicit politics so that i think a lot of what i try to do which probably fails most of the time is try to marry the concerns of a contemporary art tradition with the language of theater which tends to be much more populist or tends to be much more tends to speak a less hermetic language and the cost of that is that it tends to oversimplify things and the cost of the visual arts or the conceptual contemporary art language is that it tends to overcomplicate things to the point that it won't necessarily communicate i think what visual arts could learn from theater is trying to evolve a more open language being a little less afraid of affect a little less afraid of commercial techniques a little less committed to isolating it's a, it's a very the gallery perspective is a very is it's a cliche the gallery perspective is a very pseudo scientific pseudo objective perspective and the thing about theater which i think most people find very distasteful or at least american theater is that it's openly manipulative and it makes these kind of overt appeals to 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 non-objective non-scientific emotions and yet it does actually manage to get emotions out of you which a lot of the time in a conceptual art setting um w- one is talking about emotions one makes work about affect one makes work about emotion but we have a very hard time as spectators just given the entire arrangement actually having emotions in these settings um one thinks about emotions in these settings one thinks about the monetization of emotion in these settings one thinks about hypercapitalization one thinks about all these kind of things but one doesn't really feel very much and the point is not to feel very much and yet what could you do if you were willing to risk working with these slightly more manipulative techniques of theater as a means of activating your audience whereas we tend to assume that these affective techniques would hypnotize the audience and that would be bad but maybe they're not
a lot of the performances I'm talking about were made with a very different they they were all about this idea of invisibility and they weren't announced as performances so if you saw you know if you saw Touching Shay's one year outdoor performance you were basically passing by a guy sleeping in the street there's no way to know that it's a performance if you if you saw Adrian Piper during certain iterations of the mythic being not all of them but some of them she was just one she in drag was just one face among many in Harvard Square there was no there was no big sign um so if you imagine if or Lynn Hirschman Leeson had an alternate identity for a year or more as as another person which she carefully documented but which wasn't framed and if you if you tried to imagine these performances taking place now it would be there'd be a big sign above it you know it would be creative time presents and there'd be you know there'd be a finding guide and the but what they basically did was they did these performances that only they knew were performances and they they and the person taking the pictures knew were performances so there's this sense of um it's just happening for itself it's not an event it's not a spectacle i'm being nostalgic here but it's very it's very pure in its own way it's 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 just this it's just this thing that's happening for itself and you you forego everything you forego the announcement that's art you forego the audience you forego clapping at the end you forego a museum sponsorship you just you just do this thing and you document it and i think that that really appealed to me probably in an overly romantic way but it still really appealed to me so that's a lot of the time my my, my conflicts with producers sometimes will will tend will be me them saying do something and I'll say okay I'll, I'll do this thing it'll be great no one will know it's happening and they'll say well our our funders won't know it's happening either we can't do that so there's always this negotiation between between how how much the announcement needs to happen one thing that really interested me early on with theater when I was doing theater was that there were all these formal peculiarities to theater that no one ever wanted to talk about so in American theater training the most important thing for an actor is the illusion of the first time that's what they call it when you step on stage it should always seem like the very first time you step on stage and everything that you know the way you sell tickets it happens at night it happens once everything is geared towards helping the audience believe that but if you looked at it from the point of view of work every night they're getting paid to create the illusion that they've never done this job before and the contractual arrangements around creating this illusion and the compensation arrangements around creating this illusion are really are really fascinating because it is you know it is a loop right they do this every night it's just a very low frequency loop when we think about endurance performance it's like you're in the gallery doing the same thing for like you know hours and hours and hours that's a high frequency loop but all work is generally and especially work now work in america is a slightly lower frequency loop i mean the loop is accelerating now that work involves social media but it you know so when i talk about actors as kind of mass produced performers or mass produced bodies i mean I mean that. I mean that they get paid to feel. This is basically the job of an American actors to get paid to feel and to get paid to do a kind of work that doesn't look like work but it's still work. There's still a union, you still file contracts. So, and so if you came from theater and you were looking at sort of great endurance work of the 60s and 70s, I was always like this doesn't prove anything. I mean, these are great works, but like putting yourself in a locker doesn't prove anything. Getting shot doesn't prove anything. And it all it always seemed in this discourse of this irreducible authenticity. But I had this whole experience of just being able to pay people to do this on these lower frequency loops. So I thought, okay, well, if I can just pay them to do other things um and just increase the frequency of their loop, then I can get rid of the sentimental part about performance art. Look at the artist bearing everything because you just have an actor who just got paid to do it. So but then you wind up with these very odd situations like the farmer where he's actually doing two kinds of work at the same time. Like one of the jobs is the manual labor, but the other job is pretending to be a farmer. And so we had this whole thing when he took breaks. He could take breaks from the manual labor but he couldn't take breaks from the acting so when he took the break he still had to still work at believing that he was the farmer taking a break but he was also getting he was getting paid more than a than an immigrant farm laborer would get paid in Germany but he was getting paid by the ministry of culture rather than ministry of agriculture 
to do this performance farming, but he was also getting paid more than an American actor would get paid to play Hamlet. But all he was doing was farming. So you, all these very odd paradoxes start getting set in motion um, when you do that. And then I started playing with all these ideas about most of them don't have, most most actors have to work a second job in America to get to get health insurance to get well even if they're lucky but because acting doesn't pay enough but then i realized that i could use their union to file contracts just for them to go to their day job because their day job is technically their perform i mean it's not what they're really about whatever that is so i you know they could perform in projects like word processor or babysitter or whatever their freelance editor and i could file contracts for them with the actors union for that being a performance so all these kind of experiments with what I, I mean, I made a lot of this work like 10 years ago, but it was, and it was, people were thinking more actively about, it seemed like, it seemed like a newer thing then, but this idea of, this idea of the service economy and really having to perform like you love your job and kind of acting as being your job, whether you were an actor or not, but with this actor's union that we have in the U.S., I could actually contractually talk about that. Like I could have legal mechanisms for talking about the kind of work that you have to do as a in the precariat right so i think method acting is a very complicated and weird idea and i think it was the first thing that took me out of theater was thinking about method acting as endurance art because it was so it was so intense that there was really no reason for it not to be called endurance art um it's just that it was in a different context but it was it was as crazy as anything as anything abramovich or gina payne or chris burden could have come up with but the tension for me was always between method acting requires that you believe that you're turning into this thing, that you're this person. Work, contemporary work, often requires that you believe you're turning into the thing you're getting paid for. And so for me, the question was, how could you divide these or how could you, how could you separate them or where were, they, where were they different? You know, because also a good actor will make you feel, will make you think that they believe they're the character. And there's a long tradition, there's a long, you know, from Diderot wrote a very, within a theater, a very famous essay called The Paradox of Acting, where there's a dialogue where one person is saying, it's better if the actor really believes they're the character. And the other person who, who's basically Diderot is like, no, 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 no. The best performances are the ones where they don't believe they're the character, where they can just leave it at the end of the day and go home, which is a much healthier attitude towards towards work. So this constant question of, for me, it's less a question of like reality and authenticity. It's more a question of. It's more a question of how much do you have to convince somebody, that you really feel something, and what's the most efficient way to preserve your privacy. So, I tend not to ask them to really turn themselves inside out anymore. I just just be convincing, and, the farming thing is probably the meanest thing I'll ever do, hopefully. Um, in terms of working with performers. And I think one reason why I like loops isn't, is precisely because the, when, when I do these performances, there's certain, there's certain rules, which is they, they have to adhere to the script. They can't change the script. But the loops are there to encourage them to be virtuosic. The loops are there because the more they do them, the more the more they start working changes on them. I mean, you know, the farming thing, he had no dialogue. It was very deliberate and very, but for the most part, they're not doing manual labor. For the most part, they're speaking lines. And since I'm not directing them in any conventional way, they, they have a lot of latitude. If you can find them, if you can find them, and sometimes they're more visible than others, what they do is amazing one reason why they're very audience responsive in the works that are more visible is just so that you can watch these people who can learn an hour of dialogue let's say have no staging and just deal with the audience as it comes in and it's hard work and they you know and they get paid but at the same time it's very creative work as far as the actor is concerned because there's not any there's none of the usual theatrical constraints are in place they don't have to walk here so that the light hits them there so I think one reason why I like the loop is exactly that it lets them show how good they are at their job rather than how shitty their job is. And I think probably early earlier I was more about like how shitty the job was. And I think lately it's more about 
they have these they have this job where they can do this thing and if you take if you take these additional pressures off them that are conventional to theater they can really they can really show off in a way a lot of operations take place as soon as you take it out of the theater right the art of most kinds of art is making them seem like no work went into it you know this is the other thing that happens in american theater is everyone grows up reading brecht and everyone ignores it Right, you grow up reading Brecht, and you grow up reading Stanislavski, and they read the Brecht for some context, but no one ever actually thinks about the Brecht. One of the things I really wanted to talk about was the work involved in making theater, or the work the work involved in acting, which is supposed to look like there's no work, which basically means you have to you have to alienate in Brecht's language everything to reveal the work. So in that sense it's very anti-suspension of disbelief. And one of the things I was really interested in was letting the audience know exactly what's going on, you know, no suspension at all. And yet, in a lot of those earlier pieces, and yet you still watch, like you didn't actually need the disbelief. You could know all the mechanisms. I mean, there were people, I mean, it was terrible. There were people having picnics while this guy was farming. Like just, like you would never, you would never plan a picnic to watch a guy farm. You would watch a picnic to watch an, plan of technique to watch an actor performing farming, but there is absolutely no difference. One of the big influences on me was, was sort of minimalism and the sort of theatrical theories of minimalism and to the extent to which these geometric objects floating in space, it wasn't about the object, it was about your phenomenological experience of yourself in space. A lot of the time I was sort of trying to do that with with this recontextualization of theater, which is to say I was trying to make you more aware of how you watch. And in a way, the actors, all of this was just a pretext. It was really more to think about what you go into a gallery with, what kind of expectations you have for what you're seeing, and how fragile those can be. So in a sense, it was to make you more aware of yourself as a spectator. So these, So these pieces, they're based very much on rumor which is to say something is going on and you have to and you have to be very acutely aware of yourself as someone looking for something and you have to because you probably won't necessarily you might but you may not and your attention will go towards the most theatrical people at the exhibition but they're probably not the people that you're looking for so this this theatrical consciousness tends to become very paranoid and hyper alert and over theatricalizes everything I think a lot, and I think I probably think too much about the ways in which your ideas of how to behave as a spectator in different contexts come up. Like, like spaces create spectators. So when we go to the theater, we become one kind of spectator. When we go to the gallery, we become another kind of spectator. And the ways in which artists in either medium kind of rely on these codes. And I think because... I never really got an education in either form, in either theater or in a formal one. So it always was a little harder for me to take these premises seriously. I was just interested in working on these problems. So I couldn't take a lot of the things that really define a belief in theater seriously. Like you were asking about suspension of disbelief, and that's really the theatrical ritual. Like we go to the theater because we want to suspend disbelief collectively. We want to feel more cosmopolitan, more urbane, more skeptical, right? More individual. We digest our art in a gallery, right? Because it makes us into these kind of spectators who adopt what Brecht would have called an attitude of smoking and watching. Like we judge, we take objective distance, you know. And if we want, if we want a slight, if we want to move somewhere between the two, we might go for like. 19th century painting, you know, in an emptier gallery where we can like be moved to tears by what, but, but it's private, you know. So I start doing these performances and I start showing with galleries briefly. And obviously you've got to have these objects, but I don't think in terms of objects, I can't take objects seriously because I come from theater and objects, I mean, theater, there's no market, there's no valuation, there's no, there's no artificial scarcity, there's no additions, there's no nothing. I mean, there's props. And so for me, like objects were always like, you had to churn out these tokens 
that the performance had actually happened, right? But for me, they were just props. They were indexes of another artwork somewhere else. The first time the gallery I was working with sold an image of mine that I didn't even shoot. Somebody else shot it. Like, I was just like, I was like, this is a shitty image. It doesn't move me at all. It doesn't mean anything to me. And my friends would, you know, friends would come over to my studio, studio. Friends would, I mean, friends would come over to my apartment and who were, who were actual artists who actually believe in objects. And they would see the way I was handling this stuff, like no gloves, no tossing frames, you know, and they were, they were just like aghast and they had to teach me very carefully that these things had value and they had to be handled a certain way. And I was just like, but th th no one's ever going to buy this stuff. Like, I don't have a market. Like, this isn't, like, I don't. And I assumed this was just me, but I was in, I was in Berlin and, you know, in the aughts. And there were a lot of very, very conceptually based artists making a lot of conceptually based work that had no business being objects. They took on, I mean, the ideas were amazing but they had no business being objects and you'd find a good fabricator or you'd find a good camera person or you'd find a good editor and they would make things look great. I mean, things looked like money, things looked expensive. And then you would show them in galleries and they were just props. I mean, they were just these, I mean, I mean, there, there, there's a market for them and they circulate, but eight out of 10 times, they're only there as proof of an idea and they're more or less interesting proof of an idea. And there was, I could, I could never understand why this choice rather than that choice when I was making objects, like, like, why is it this finish rather than that finish? Why is it this rather than that? And, you know, we, we hire fabricators to do these things. We hire graphic designers to make the, to make the identity for the project we hired. And like, it's, there's not that many artists who work in, in with these kind of concerns who really have like, the material sense of why this material rather than that material, why this, why is there a curve here rather than a line here? And so we're making all of this work that's all very conceptual. It's supposed to critique the entire idea of the market. You know, it's, I mean, the, the, the origins of this stuff were to exceed the capacity of the market to, to commoditize it. And yet at the end of the day, we all rely on the market to commoditize it because that's how you make your money. So at the end of the day, you go along with it. It's the price of doing business. So you do, you know, I mean, and, and the, the cliche is always, you know, of institutional critique relying on institutions, but, but it's, it's a more conventional system than that. We come up with ideas. If we want to make a living off the ideas, we need to have material proof of those ideas. We're all engaged in giving these objects values, us and our gallerists and our collectors, but at least speaking for me, I don't have any internal necessity to, I feel no internal necessity to make objects and I don't feel particularly confident making objects actually. Um, so I, you know, and then I stopped working with galleries and because I didn't make them any money because why would I? But then I started having these opportunities, solo shows that almost required that objects be made. And then I thought, okay, you know, why not? I'll do what I normally do, which is make the best object I know how to make. It's not like I don't have a visual imagination. It's just not particularly sophisticated and it's not particularly experienced and it's not particularly trained. But since I'm very uncertain about whether or not these objects qualify as art, and, I'm, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm doing a very retrograde, very romantic kind of idea of like, you know, what counts as art, um, but so be it. I would make these things, that I, these objects that I wasn't particularly confident about and I never have been, but then I could dramatize that situation because in both of these exhibitions, there was a centerpiece of this monologue. So I collect images that I, that I find moving, but I never know what to do with them because I'm not trained in anything. I just, I just keep them. And then these exhibitions would become excuses to take these images that haunted me and kind of make prints of them or make weird prints of them. But then I was like, yeah, but you know, I hired somebody to do this process on them or I, I, you know, or all I did was like call someone to make a nice print of this image I found in October. This is not, this does, I mean, but it was also my own impression of like going into a lot of gallery shows and seeing, you know, seeing research-based practice work that was pretty much, you know, or like archive work or like bookshelf work or, you know, which is pretty much just like, you know, like I found the stuff, I arranged the stuff, I have a practice, here you go, 
you know, and it was, and everybody, everybody is always like a little suspicious of this stuff when you walk in. You can't quite help it, but you can't quite talk about it because we're all in the same field and you, you know, and we're all trying to make, you know, but I was like, okay, so I can make a show that looks just like these shows that raises the same suspicions when the gallery is empty. There's a bunch of prints, there's an object, there's a remade object that I find kind of fascinating. Um, and if you walked in, you'd be like, and you need the press release because the press release tells you how to read. There's this very mystical notion that the, it's like, it's like, it's like fragments of the true cross, right? Like everyone's got a fragment and, you know, Christ touched it. It's like religious relics. So you got these objects and then the press release is like, you know, like Danvo, like, you know, like the, the Danvo, uh, the material, you know, the history of this object is somehow inhering in the object or, you know, you've got like the history of, you know, you've got this like very heavy research that the artist did to make this object and the object gains value from the research in some way right that somehow inheres in this thing which is which is completely i mean no it's mysticism it's 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 it, and and it's not it's an object and it lives or dies as an object it does not it does not take on it does not i mean you know uh, there's some really nice danvo stuff but it you know and it makes you think about the pedigree right it makes you think about where this object has been and where it, where it comes from but that's not the same thing as the history being in the object Right. So these objects are just tokens of thought. These objects are tokens of research. These objects are tokens of thought. That's what they're there for. But they, because no one can question this part, they're showing up in a space that's designed to make objects sacred. Right. That's what, that's what modernist gallery space is for. Like the stuff becomes holy somehow. The stuff gets some aura. The stuff becomes autonomous, even though all the work is about a critique of autonomy implicitly. That's the premise of this. And yet somehow it's the cost of doing business. So we all make these objects that refer to some thoughts. And so I thought, okay, well, you walk in, you walk into my show and there's some stuff and it's like, I don't know why this is important. And then you look at the press release and then the press release is like, oh, because these prints are from here and they're appropriated from this. And, and he did all this research and this mask comes from this era and it was recreated by a fabrication studio. And blah, blah, blah. Um, but you really need the press release, right? Because the press release tells you how to read the object. But that all that amounts to at the end of the day is that the object is a prop. The object is a prop under certain circumstances that makes the object more magical than it would be otherwise. So I thought, okay, well, if I, so you go into my show and it's like, oh, yeah, another one of these, that's fine. Like mid-level conceptualism, that's great. But when the monologue, which is always the third work in this thing is in the room, it starts talking about the images specifically, which is in very poor taste for artwork, right? And the more it addresses the artworks, the more the artworks start to seem like props. Because then you don't know what they are. They're not autonomous anymore because this extra artwork has appropriated them. And then you wind up in this Guy de Quintet situation where, you know, where you've got these objects that are now, that had been props, and now they're, you know, well, he's dead. So now they're definitely artworks, like Jack Smith kind of thing. But in this case, when the monologue was talking, they were props. It made the whole room into a theater. And when the monologue left, they were art, like not great art. And then, so there was this constant violation of, it wouldn't stay in one state. And that really interested me. And that goes back to this thing of like, well, what expectations did I walk in here with? Why did I assume that some, because something is in a gallery, it has to, it has to have autonomy. Why shouldn't it be contingent? The irony is we, we still walk into galleries wanting transcendence, even if we're looking at like very careful sociological studies, they're in these cases and, you know, and like you have to do all this reading, but we've just decided that we've decided that this is the format for everything and it's not a good architecture for everything. It's an architecture that was designed for paintings and sculptures, which obviously I don't, I'm not advocating for the primacy of paintings and sculptures, but it's just, it's a very odd the notion that the space can accommodate anything will put a bunch of stuff in the space that totally doesn't work as a, as a so-called challenge, you know, so we're like, we're like challenging the boundaries of the gallery by, you know, but the space is challenged, but all, all you've proven at the end of the day is that it's better to read in a library. It's better to watch theater in a theater. 
it's better to do X. You know, I mean, all, all you've proved are the limits of the space. You've not actually made it any easier to read in a gallery. You've not made it any easier to listen to a lecture in a gallery. The acoustics in galleries are atrocious. But because we have a very site-defined notion of genre, you know, this was, this was Nauman's thing. If, if it's in the studio, it must be art. If it's in the gallery, it's automatically art, which is fine, but no one, you know, we're not supposed to be making all these objects. This is, this is one reason why Tino Segal is so, is so great, or at least part of his practice is so great, is just because he was like, there's just too much stuff. But very few, very few artists can make a living without generating the stuff. So we all have to generate the stuff. But the stuff is just stuff. So I thought there might be ways of demystifying the stuff at least half the time. One of the things I really, and I've been thinking this since we started doing this interview, because I feel like a lot of my answers tend to be very much about formal concerns and sort of art historical concerns or critical concerns. But then, but then part of me is always like, why am I doing, like, why do I keep doing this? And so the story I came up with for the monologue in the Brooklyn Museum was about an actor who, uh, an actor who can't feel it the way he's supposed to feel it or the way she's supposed to feel it. They're trying to be professional actors in Los Angeles and they, they, they just bomb out because they don't, they don't believe the way an American actor has to believe. And they wind up in New York where they can, you know, it's all a little more anonymous and they get a job as an extra, like in crowd scenes. And they love this job because they can just let the camera kind of go over them. And it doesn't matter if they can perform belief or not. The camera automatically makes them, gives them the minimum level of performance necessary and then it moves on. And for them, this is great. They can perform without having to perform. They can listen to audiobooks. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter. But they get wrapped up with uh, the casting agent who runs this extras casting agency. Turns out to be a kind of cult leader and a kind of megalomaniac who keeps insisting who keeps who takes this casting agency she has and she starts sending the extras out into other things that aren't movies um the you know political rallies and protests and all sorts of infiltrations and no one's really sure if she if she's if no one really knows what her background is she's very but but so this figure of the shadowy casting agent who keeps doing this thing i mean that that was basically me and it was basically me trying to figure out why I do these things and the degree of the degree of megalomania involved, the degree of why is this vision moving to me? Why and what is the proportion of like romanticism to anonymity to nostalgia to anti-democratic tendencies to pro-democratic tendencies? Like what why would I do these things? And the reason I'm saying all that, because I still don't really understand why I keep coming back to these ideas. And I would like to, because I'd like to be able to offer a less formal explanation of them, is that the, the, the narrator of this monologue may or may not have lost their minds. And Kawa is, that essay on, it's called Mimicry and Legendary Psychasthenia, is a really odd essay because it posits that the drive to camouflage is actually a death drive. And it's actually a drive that's associated with schizophrenia. His argument is that you can't explain camouflage as a defensive or an offensive mechanism because that explanation is completely anthropocentric, which is to say just because a stick insect looks like a stick to me does not mean that it looks like a stick to the animals that it's supposed to be deceiving. On the one hand, there's this notion that you can't explain camouflage that way. Um, and also because if it looks too much like a stick, it winds up getting eaten by animals who eat sticks. <laughs> so there were, there's all these short circuits in our accounts of camouflage that Kawa points out. And, and then he says, and yet there are definitely very weird instincts in animals that take hold of them anyway. And so he tries to account for it in a way that isn't so instrumental and in a way that isn't so anthropocentric. And what he comes up with, and this is a quote I didn't, use well i did use it but i didn't attribute it is that there's a tendency in animals to become similar and he writes not similar to anything just similar and then he likens it to the experience of schizophrenics who feel their own 
corporeal boundaries breaking down and they talk he talks about them feeling devoured by space and he talks about space as a temptation so he winds up with this very hallucinogenic vision of the world and, and it's sort of related to Bataille's theories of energy where like to be a living organism is to constantly be between a temptation to pull oneself forward and make oneself known and the temptation by space to just eat you and dissolve you and there's a sense in which everything wants everything wants to dissolve and this gets related to like a death drive so that what you really want to do is just to be eaten alive by space and just to vanish that interested me because it posited an emotional valence to this notion of you know wanting to be special versus not wanting to be special wanting to stand out versus wanting to infiltrate what it means emotionally to want to feel along with everybody else versus what it means emotionally to want to stand out. And when I, when I go back to these, you know, original artworks by people like Piper and Shea, what, what is most interesting to me is they weren't, they weren't known artists at that point. And even, even if they thought of themselves as artists, even if they thought of themselves as, you know, even if they took pictures just to make sure that later people would know that they did that, there was still an enormous, risk in not standing out so there are two approaches to art there's like the rock star approach which would be like the burden capra abramovich and i mean capra is a different artist but there's, there's a sense of like doing an event you are the artist you're the center of attention and conversely there's this counter notion of just vanishing and you do it but you do it you do it without staging an event around yourself you do it without being special and these these countervailing tendencies can be articulated in formal terms, as I've been doing. But I think there's really an emotional valence to that. And the Kalwa kind of helped me helped me start thinking about it. Like one of the very earliest pieces I did was two actors locked in a box in a gallery doing two person plays all day long. I mean they had food, they had they had scripts, but they were just in this box and they their job was just to do readings of these plays and you couldn't see them. And I was trying to get an actor who later became a pretty known, you know, Holly not very known, but reliably employed Hollywood actor, but and he was a friend back then in you know in New York and I tried to get him to do it along with a bunch of other actors. And he was like, but there's no applause at the end, there's no bow. And I was like, no, there's no bow, you just do it again. And he's like, why would I want to? And it's a really good question. He was like, why would I want to do it if there's no applause? And this is this is the essential question, you know. Like, you know, I understand when actors don't want to do my pieces because they're not anonymity is not what they got into this for. And myself, I I, I don't know why I have such a distaste for it. You know, like I'll invite people to come see my. I'll invite people to come see, like people. I, you know, the, the two or three people I know in Barcelona were like, you know, oh, I'll come, I'll come see your, I'll come see your thing today. And I was like, mm, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But the idea of them coming to see my stuff and then not finding it. And then they're very annoyed after three hours, you know, and they're like, I came to, I came to see your show and I, and I feel bad. Like I feel bad. They came all the way to see my piece and I didn't show them. So I often am like, don't just like, don't because you're not, you're going to be mad at me. I'm going to feel guilty. I, you know, so so why not? There's, there's just a tension that I don't understand between these things. And the Kawa was a way of, uh, so it, it moved me. Yeah. You know, there's this Francis Alice line, I think, maximum effort, minimum effect. I'm going to try to leave aside the part that romanticizes failure, because that's obviously like a flaw in me, but... You know, again, you can't help these things always. But I think that one reason why I like commercial actors is because they're so good. I'm not a fan of unpersuasive performances. I'm not a fan of, like, bad acting. I'm not a fan of exaggeration. I'm So, I mean, I and on the one hand, I'm really committed to virtuosity. The better you are at your job, the less anyone notices you're doing your job. And the realist actor is, like, the classic example of this, which is, like, the better they are, the more they look like everybody else. So there's a sense of, like... I'm not into failure to do the job. What I think I find interesting is failure to get a response or failure to get a reward or failure to have your work recognized because you've become so proficient and so virtuosic that no one knows you're working. And so the signs of visible labor, one of the reasons why we had to change the Brooklyn show from like a 
a real fake crowd to a fake fake crowd or to a performance was that there was no visible labor taking place. And the more I would try to reassure people that no one would ever notice, the more worried they got, you know, because then there wouldn't be anything that looked like art. And so this is how the second monologue happens, so you could actually see work taking place. So virtuosity can lead to another kind of failure, which is like a failure of award or a failure of emotional satisfaction. The show about the headshots was also about, because and I don't know where these are related, but was also about an economic system. When I was working in theater, I was always struck by these headshots and their images that actors send in. I mean, every, every but again, like every country does them differently. Um, headshots for professionals in Germany would be thrown out immediately in the US. Um, and the, at the, there's a visual code. And there was a culture where, you know, you'd send these things to agents to get representation. And representation was very important the way having a gallery was very important because then these people could fight these battles for you. And it would also mean that someone was already invested in exploiting you, which meant that, you know, someone already thought you could be monetized. And if one person thinks you can be monetized, then they can convince other people that you could, that you're worth exploiting. Being worth exploiting is very important. But the first step was the headshot and getting an agent. And this, and this is back when you had to do it in print. So actors would spend tons of money. They would read these books about how to get an agent. And they would spend tons of money. And they would send these out by post on these reproductions. And they'd hire a headshot photographer. Blah, 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 blah. And, the, and I, you know, I was a director. I had an agency. And I would see the actors' agents just opening these things and just throwing them out. And like they were just littered. And I, so I sort of did the study of the entire ecology of the headshot from a... Um, from an ecological point of view, from a financial point of view, from, you know, I did all these calculations of the numbers of headshots that circulate around the world and get and then, sorry, New York City and get thrown out. But obviously, you know, it's your face. What you're selling is yourself. That is what you are trying to sell. It was, it was the affect economy in its purest form and, you know, in, in, in an earlier form before social media. But to that extent, it's a metaphor for, an artistic identity or artistic production generally. Like, you know, if you're an artist, you have the advantage of being able to hide behind your work. But the systems are still the same. The systems are the same in every field of cultural production. You make something, you find someone to represent that something to other people who might be interested in buying or exploiting that something. But the actor's headshot was a very pure form of this. So I started raiding the recycling bins of all these agencies. And the rule was they would throw out these, because every Thursday they'd put out all the headshots they'd gotten in the mail, which they never looked at, or they barely looked at. And the rule was that they had to have been sent unsolicited, right? The agents didn't ask for them. And they had to have not worked. Just to say, sometimes they kept them. Every once in a while it would work. And this is the culture industry thing. Like you dangle just enough success stories that people keep, that, but there's this entire secondary economy of headshot photographers, printers, uh, like little guides about what addresses to send these things to. This is all before it went online. So I would collect these things and I'd archive them and I'd catalog them extensively. And then I would, I would, you know, erase the addresses. And then I would do these like huge spills, like these massive thousands of headshot spills in galleries, right? And artists would come in, you know, to the opening and everyone would sort of, you, you, got, you get visually proficient very quickly. It takes a minute before you start seeing whose headshots are bad and whose are good. Like you, you, you suddenly, you know. But artists would kind of, like I remember at the opening of the first one in Berlin, um, you know, everyone's kind of like laughing at these actors. I'm like, why are you laughing? Like, this is what we do. This is you. You know, and the next day, an act, the next day, an artist who was in town from New York dropped off her portfolio at the gallery, <laughs> right? Because it was just about the actors for for this person. It wasn't it, it wasn't about production generally. So I am very ashamed of my desire to stand out. Obviously, I am very ashamed of my desire to be known, which I have. I am very ashamed at my desire to put myself out into the world, which I still have. So I make artworks that pretend not to be artworks because I'm not sure about them. They might be props. I have actors who may or may not be doing art. I have all these mechanisms for kind of, you know, so partially, partially these shows about headshots were about, you know, the price of wanting to be known, right? So their failure, 
their failure was my failure. Their shame was my shame. That's like the not good part of it, to the extent there is a good part of it. That's like the very bad part of it. But the other part of it was more about a system that demands a certain amount of failure to function, which is to say, you can laugh at these guys all you want, but the next step is that this approach sometimes actually works. And the next approach is that there's not any different from anybody else trying to get a job. What's difficult about looking at these headshots is that what they're selling, what they're selling is hope. In the American system, what they're selling is hope. And the entire art of getting these pictures done is that you have to look like, you have to look hopeful, whatever that is. You have to look like you believe in the system. You have to perform belief in the system. And your first response when you look at these things is, oh my God, this is terrible. Stop hoping at me. These people are ridiculous. But then when you actually talk to these people, they're not that hopeful. They just know what they're supposed to perform. And that's a performance. And that's what's required. They're as jaded as everybody else. This is just the performance that you put out. And yet we have this tendency to attribute a real, a real thing to it. So it was more about those actors weren't failures. And I think ultimately it was really about our response to things that look like failure because the reason the reason everybody gets so even other actors get so kind of about this is that we all recognize the kind of performance that we have to put out and i think that it it's just very hard to look at that performance it's very hard to look at that much hope because like a fake crowd we assume it's sincere and we don't think about the fact that it's actually just another performance and I think that the other thing too, which, you know, like that story I told you about the applause and the guy's like, where's the applause? I think that, yeah, actually, I think with, with most of my stuff, it's a sense of like, would you do it if no one clapped, right? Like, would you, would you perform if no one clapped? Would you make art if no one clapped? Would you, and, and how much is that a kind of failure and how much is that simply just something you do? Right. And like, is it a failure if nobody claps or is it just another thing entirely? If you take that out of the equation, like, are you willing to do it without, without that? And then what does it become? I don't see failure as like a liberatory concept, although I think there's some really interesting writing about that. I think my, my interest in failure is more, why do you think this is a failure? Questioning the concept of failure more than thinking that failure has a certain critical, has, has, has a certain kind of criticality implicit to it is our ascriptions of failure interest me why is a fake crowd a failure why is an actor who wants a job a failure why is an artwork that's invisible a failure a failure to what